Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week. The Anarchist World This Week is produced from the studios of Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and is broadcast across the world through the World Wide Web and across Australia through the Community Radio Network. All those crazy, lovely people, the Community Radio Network, broadcasting across Australia, the Anarchist World this week and many other delicious programs, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, if you wonder what anarchy is all about, anarchos without rulers. So let's look at this as a maths Maths problem. Anarchos without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? What gives rulers power? Inequalities in power. The capacity to make decisions for other people. Inequalities in wealth. It's those two things, inequalities in power and wealth, which give rulers power. So what is, what is an anarchist? An anarchist is somebody who's, revol- who's involved in the struggle to devolve power. The word devolve is a simple word for saying to share power. And you can do that through direct democratic means or you can do it through other decision-making concepts like consensus. So and it's about holding wealth in common. That's right, holding wealth in common and using wealth for the common good. Now, these are not revolutionary ideas. These are simple, straightforward ideas. So if you are involved in the struggle to improve people's lives, you are, whether you like it or not, an anarchist. So get that A tattooed on your buttock. All right, let's move on. I want to discuss some issues which I think are interesting, which you most likely you think are boring, but I want to give a an analysis of what's happening in the 21st century and uh, the role of the state in that uh, analysis. Now, the state up till the 20th century, was the instrument which was used to ensure that those who exercised power, those who ruled, continued to rule. And the state's power was based on its ability to have a monopoly on the use of force. And that continues to be the, the definition the current definition of the state. It is an organisation which has a monopoly on the use of force, whether it's a democratic, whether it's dictatorial. If it, has the, if it has a monopoly on the use of force through a legal system, it has the p- potential to uh, 
create a society which reflects its interests. Now, the late 19th century and the early 20th century was the century of revolutions. And a revolution is basically is basically a movement that dismantles power and changes culture. And when I say dismantle power, it doesn't necessarily follow that from a revolution you will actually get an egalitarian community. In some revolutions, what you see is the centralisation of power in fewer and fewer hands, as we saw in the so-called communist revolutions which swept the, uh, the globe. So you've got this situation in a revolutionary situation where you dismantle power and you change culture. Now, during the late 19th century and the 20th century, the state was forced to take on a role that it never had, and that was to look after the interests of the people in that region it was responsible for. It, not responsible for, it exploited. So the state was forced through the bodies of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of men, men women and children to actually take on that responsibility. And what we saw at the beginning of the 20th century up till about the 1970s, especially in the Western states and many other states, was the state taking an active interest in the welfare of its citizens. For example, the introduction of three compulsory education, the introduction of public health, the introduction of uh, rights for individuals, uh, the, the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of, you know, freedom of uh, association. So these are freedoms which were not part and parcel of the state. They had never have been. But they were reforms which were forced on the state by people taking action, in the majority of cases through direct action, through reform movements, through revolutions. So what we saw by the end of the, by the, end of the 1970s was a state which was being transformed from an instrument of oppression, an instrument of exploitation, to an instrument was still exploiting and oppressing people, but which had been forced to look after the interests of the people in its sphere of influence. So what we saw is the expansion of public service, the expansion of public infrastructure, the establishment of uh, pensions. We saw the establishment of old age pensions, disability support pensions, single parents pensions and benefits. So instead of people being forced to beg and survive the best way they can, the state was forced to take up that position. But in the last 40 years, we have seen a concerted effort across the globe, not just in Western world, but across the globe, which is attempting to roll back all the gains which were made over the past century through struggle. And that pushback has been based on four concepts which have been adopted by most major political parties and movements around the world for the last 40 years. And that is the concept of one, deregulation. And what's deregulation? For, I'll give you, I like to give practical examples. For example, currently everybody's beating themselves on the chest 
because of the cladding scandal, buildings having cracks, uh, people who've bought real estate don't actually have any rights, and the list goes on and on. Now, it's quite obvious, 100% obvious, that if you're going to deregulate the building sector, especially uh, the sector which actually ensures that building works are conducted in a safe way to provide a safe type of uh, endpoint at the end of that, if you deregulate that and put it in the private marketplace and remove the regulations which govern business, whose primary aim is very simple. In a capitalist society, business has only one mission statement, and that is to create ever-increasing profits for its owners or its major shareholders, irrespective of the human, social and environmental costs. That is the mantra of every corporation, every business in a capitalist society. It is not there to provide a service for, not a, for no profit. It is there to create profit for its owners or if it's publicly listed, for its major shareholders. So we now find ourselves in a situation over the last 40 years that regulations which were put in place, whether it's in the workplace to protect worker safety or whether it's in the general community in terms of construction or in terms of air safety or in terms of uh, safety in public transport and the list goes on and on, these regulations have been watered down. And it's quite interesting to see that Mr Morrison, our current Prime Minister, hasn't learnt the lesson. And he was spruiking the idea that they need to continue to deregulate the Australian economy. Now, deregulation of the Australian economy has, to a large degree, resulted in the scandals we see in the nursing home sector, in the inability, the scandals we see in the energy sector, and the list goes on and on. So deregulation has been one of the four pillars of this push to revert the state back to its original origins, which was to, to, to use its monopoly on the use of force through the police, the legal system and the armed forces to ensure that those who ruled continued to rule. Whether it's a democracy, whether it's a dictatorship, whether it's a, some type of feudal monarchy, it's exactly the same principle. So the next pillar of this revolution, and it is a revolution, it's a revolution to dismantle power, which has been given to people and bring that power back in the hands of minority. And the next major pillar is what's called privatisation. Now, during the 19, late 19th century and 20th century, the state was forced through public pressure to create entities which provided services, especially essential services, for people. So we saw the creation of a national airline through Qantas. We saw the, cre- we saw the creation and extension of ports around the country as Australia is an island nation. We saw the uh, creation of a people's bank, the Commonwealth Bank in the good old days, which was formed in 1911 
to provide finance finances to people who the traditional banks would not lend to, working people. We saw the creation of uh, pro- um, publicly owned transport systems, railways, buses, trams. We saw the creation and expansion of public libraries, public health care, public education. But what we've seen over the past 40 years, a wholesale attempt to give back, that's right, give back those resources for a peppercorn cost to the private sector because we're told ad nauseum the private sector does it best. Look at the telecommunications you know, uh, situation we find ourselves in today. The private sector does it best. Look at the situation we find ourselves in the public housing sector where we have uh, community and affordable housing kind of taking over the role of, which are privately owned organisations, the role of public housing. Look at the situation we find ourselves in the energy sector, gas and electricity. Instead of dealing with one state-owned entity, you're dealing with tonnes of entities which own all bits and pieces. And let's look at uh, what's happened there. So what we have seen over the last 40 years is wholesale privatisation of public assets. Now, these public assets were created from taxes, from taxpayers' funds. They were created from taxpayers' funds to provide a service to the community, services like Australia Post, which was created to ensure that people in regional and rural Australia could send a letter for the same cost as somebody in an urban setting. So what we've seen over the last 40 years is the privatisation of the Commonwealth Bank, the privatisations of uh, Telstra, the privatisation of the ports of this country, the privatisation of Qantas, the privatisation of energy systems across the energy generation and distribution systems across the country. And what we are seeing now is the privatisation of essential services, like the privatisation of Centrelink. We are seeing the privatisation of the public education sector, the privatisation of the public health sector. For example, although some you may have a public hospital which is funded, funded, by the taxpayer, you may have privately run pathology and radiology services in those public hospitals which are there to make a profit for their shareholders and the list goes on and on. We even, we've reached the situation where people are talking about privatisation, the hex debt. We see the privatisation you know, of uh, uh, the refugee system where you have private corporations running the system on, so, on behalf of the government the privatisation of the Commonwealth Employment Service, where we see large uh, privately owned corporations, mostly religious-based, exploiting the system for their own ends and making billions of dollars of profit while not providing much of a service. So the list goes on and on. So privatisation 
has basically led to a lack of competition in the marketplace, which means in fancy words is there's no real competition. You may have four major banks. It's like the service stations, which look at, look at what the other service station is charging and charge the same amount. There's no real competition because there's no state-owned, no federally-owned, no state-owned competition. When you had the Commonwealth Bank, the privately-owned banks had to deal with the possibility of competition from a state-owned bank. Today, we don't really have any guarantee as far as our funds are concerned, although we've supposedly got a $250,000 guarantee. But the reality is that at the end of the day, the Commonwealth Bank was owned by the Australian government on behalf of the Australian people. So people who put their funds in the Commonwealth Bank had a 100% guarantee as far as their funds were concerned. So the list goes on and on. Now, the next thing we've, we, uh, the next pillar of this rollback, this rollback of uh, rights, services, which we had struggled for and won, the next pillar has been corporatisation. That's a big word, isn't it? Corporatisation, fancy words. All it means is the logical endpoint on a capitalist system which is based on endless competition. Because what happens is that in every sphere of human endeavour, fewer and fewer corporations are able to compete and smaller businesses are snuffed out or basically, you know, are used as... uh, uh, they're just used as a mechanism by which the larger business and the larger corporation maximises their profits. So corporatisation has been a real issue, especially in Australia, which has no anti-monopoly laws. Now, even in the United States, the home of corporate capitalism, there is an anti-monopoly law, which means that if a particular corporation dominates a marketplace, they can be forced to divest themselves and split up and resell their assets. There's no monopoly. So we find the ridiculous situation in Australia where 80% of the food distribution and selling business is in the hands of two large companies, where in telecommunications you have two or three large companies. So in every field of human endeavour, what you find is basically that a few large corporations dominate the marketplace in that sphere of human endeavour. That obviously decreases competition and maximises profits for them. So we see in Australia where governments, especially conservative governments like the Morrison-led Liberal National Party, crap on about the pivotal role of the 5 million people involved in small business in this country while giving corporations carte blanche to destroy small business. And the tragedy of the last uh, federal election was that when small business owners had the opportunity uh, to actually uh, kind of reverse that trend, they, in the majority, decided to support the current government. So next time a small business owner complains to me about how tough things are, well, I just say, well, you did have an option. You did have an option. And then we've got globalisation, a fancy word, for ensuring that local industries have to compete in an uneven marketplace. I mean, it doesn't take a genius like you or me to realise 
that if you have globalisation, that somebody earning fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year is not going to be able to c- compete with somebody earning twenty-four dollars a month in Bangladesh. So we see the death of the textile industry. We see the death of the footwear industry. We see the death of the car manufacturing industry. We see the death of all these industries in this country. We see the death of the dairying industry as it corporatizes and globalizes. We saw the demutualization of associations which were formed in order to allow certain industries to collectively work together and collectively bargain as far as their goods and services were concerned. And especially the rural sector has been, you know, uh, seduced by the idea of uh, maximizing profits by, uh, you know, through exports in a global market. So these four pillars of corporate capitalism, deregulation, privatisation, globalisation and corporatization, have to a significant degree rolled back most of the gains which were made by the 19th and 20th century. So how does that fit in with the current situation? It's very simple. As these gains have rolled back, what we have seen is the passage of legislation through federal and state parliaments which remove rights and liberties which we think we have constitutionally, which we don't have. Because if you want a a democracy, even a parliamentary democracy, you need a, a number of freedoms. And you need the freedom of speech, which we don't have in this country. We have an implied freedom of speech during a parliamentary election period. You need a freedom of association, which we don't have in this country. And you you need a freedom of assembly, which you don't have in this country. You may have in some states, but there is legislation. Legislation has been passed, like we saw in the Bielke-Peterson regime, where the freedom of assembly was removed at the stroke of a pen. And it could be done constitutionally because there's no... No constitutional rights in the Australian Constitution for the individual. There's nothing to protect the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. As we see a number of trials being conducted of whistleblowers who alerted the public to deficiencies within their system who are now facing life imprisonment for alerting the public and a destruction of their lives. Now, when Julie Bishop, the former foreign minister, said a few days ago that Parliament needs to oversee the growing security apparatus in this country, you know we have a problem. When you see the chiefs of the three major media outlets in this country, the Government Guild at ABC and the corporate-owned Murdoch Empire and the corporate-owned Nine Network, which now owns The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, getting together and complaining about the lack of freedom of speech and their ability to conduct their business and inform the public, you know we have a problem. When you have legislation which allows children as well as adults to be indefinite, to be detained for up to two weeks because they may inadvertently have legislation which may assist the government in their inquiries, you know we have a problem. When we have legislation which can see people involved in a peaceful occupation, a workplace occupation, jailed for 25 years, you know we have a problem.
when you have a department as large and as oppressive as the Home Security Department run by Mr Dutton, you know we have a problem. When you have an Attorney-General who can legally disband any organisation he or she likes because he or she believes they may pose a threat to property, not just people, you know we have a problem. When you have legislation which can see people jailed up for 25 years for continuing to be members of a banned organisation or members financially supporting a so-called banned organisation, you know we have a problem. So when the former conservative, liberal uh, foreign minister, Julie Bishop, says that Parliament needs to oversee the growing security apparatus in this country, you know we have a real problem. So what we are seeing over the last 40 years during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation revolution which has swept across the world, not just Australia, and the enactment and the passage of legislation which restricts, strips away the few protection the individual has against the arbitrary exercise of state power, which removes freedom of speech, which denies us freedom of association and which denies us freedom of assembly, you know we have a problem. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Scarlett. Uh, I'm Joseph Toscano. Look, a few websites you can go to, Facebook pages, if you're interested in that type of thing. You can go to uh, Public Housing, Everybody's Business, Facebook page, Defend and Extend Public Housing, Facebook page, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, pipsy.pibci.net, uh, web page, very uh, professionally done web page which tells you what we're doing. Um, public interest before corporate interests, uh, Twitter stream, Pibsi, P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U, Pibsi, P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U. You can go to the Anarchist Institute webpage, anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. So there are many things happening. The thing is, things only happen if you create them. So let's move on. Now, I was very interested to see that... Uh, the Mullahs, or that's Ch- Chief Muller, whatever his name is in Iran, kind of suggested that the, well, said, not suggested, said that uh, President Groper and his crew down in the White House in the US of A, you know, were uh, mentally retarded. I was very upset. I was exceptionally upset. And I'll tell you why I'm upset. I'm upset. Because to compare Mr. Trump or Mr. President Groper Trump with the mentally retarded is a disservice to the mentally retarded. I don't think anybody who's got a issue regarding uh, limited intelligence capacity would actually be doing the type of stuff that him and his administration are doing. Because what I want to talk about is economic terrorism. Now, everybody loves to talk about terrorism. We see people blowing themselves up with suicide vests, you know, uh, 
pumping shots into, you know, um, crowds, you know, running cars into people, you know, killing people in mosques and the list goes on and on, you know. And everybody gets upset and it's naturally upset and I agree with that. I mean, how stupid can you be to think that you destroy the state through force, you dismantle authority through force, and that somehow by targeting people who've got nothing to do with with the particular issue, haven't made the decisions, who are just basically going about their business, you're going to change the world. It doesn't happen that way. And history is full of failed movements which have gone down that direction. But economic terrorism is something the United States has refined to a fine art. And we see it across the globe. Now, the biggest victims of the United States economic terrorism has been successive Venezuelan governments. And I know five million people have fleed you know, from Venezuela because of difficult economic circumstances to a significant degree in the last uh, decade and more will continue to flee that country. But putting an economic blockade on a country is a strategy which has been used by the United States over and over again in order to create social conditions in a country which will lead to regime change, which will lead to regime change which supports United States interest in that particular area. And currently the United States is involved in economic sanctions against Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, North Korea... It's involved in a dispute with Russia and a trade dispute with, with, with China. And it tries to use its economic muscle in order to bankrupt the society, foment dislocation, foment a dissent in a community, which will lead to a revolt, which will see people who are aligned to the United States foreign policy uh, initiative, you know, uh, seize power in that situation. And it's a slow way of actually attempting to create regime change. But the world is changing. The world is changing. The United States' ability to flex its economic muscle is decreasing. So instead of the United States being all Cooper hoop about you know, sanctions in Cuba and Venezuela... Maybe if they put the same effort into trying to resolve the issues which are occurring in Central America, which have led to an avalanche of refugees trying to seek asylum in the United States of America, which in the United States of America, the only solution is to put a wall up between Mexico and the United States. Maybe if they put their energies into that, maybe they wouldn't have the uh, refugee crisis they currently face. But again, it doesn't suit the economic interests of those who pull the levers of power. And the great thing of ha having President Groper Trump in power and the enormous amount of power he is able to exercise as president is the fact that he thinks he's running a corporation, that he thinks if you dangle enough money in front of people or give them economic opportunities, they're somehow going to uh, you know, uh, support your program. And nothing highlights this in the current pathetic attempt by the United States government through his son-in-law, I've forgotten the loser's name, through the son-in-law, you know, to uh, 
you know, pump $50 billion into Palestine and the Gaza Strip in order to stimulate the economy. I mean, they dangle the dollar down, thinking that somehow people are going to jump up and down and grab that dollar, forgetting that life is more about dollars and cents. It's more about, it's more than, you know, uh, mobile phones and televisions and, you know, and creature comforts. There are things which are much more important. I mean, tens of thousands of Palestinians have died in the last 70 years to regain the right to return to the homeland for which they were evicted. And the list goes on and on. And it's quite interesting. I mean, if you, want to really, you really want to be ironical about this and really nasty, it's quite interesting. We saw dollars being dangled before the eyes of the Australian electors a few months ago, about six or seven weeks ago, and they grabbed those fistful of dollars hoping that it'll, it'll fill up their pockets and wallets. And while we've seen the same tactic being used in the Palestine, uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, maybe... And we're not seeing people jump up and down to pull down those dollars saying, well, there are more important things. There are more important things in our lives than dollars. And that's the issue. That's the central issue in Australia today, and I'll bring it back to Australia. That's the central issue. We're told it's about economics. We're told it's about economics. Now... I'm not very smart, and obviously you're not very smart because you're listening to The Anarchist World this week. Why would you listen to the program like The Anarchist World this week? You know, if you're rich and famous, you know, if you're smart, if you had all the answers, you wouldn't be listening to The Anarchist World this week. But this is how it goes, and you've got to, you've got to laugh about this. I've got to take up comedy. Maybe I will take up comedy. I've been thinking about it for a while. This is how it goes. Companies and corporations have maximised their profits over the last 40 years. And what we've seen since the 1970s is for every dollar that's invested, two-thirds, 66.66666666 cents goes to the pocket of the investor. And every dollar that's invested in 2019, 33.3% goes into the pocket of the person who works to create that wealth. Okay, 40 years ago, the, the ratio was reversed. 66 cents went into the dollar of the worker, $33 in, into the, in the pocket of the investor. Corporate profits have never been so high, okay? But wage growth has never been so low. So in order to stimulate the economy, what the Australian people have agreed to in the last federal election they have agreed for this government to provide not just ordinary working people but rich people with substantial tax cuts, right? Tax cuts. We all voted for it. Well, you did, I didn't. You voted for it. Okay, you wanted the tax cuts. And the government says it wants to balance the budget because, see, running Australia is a little bit like running your own personal finances. It's pretty simple. It's not as complex as they say. There's income in, income out, and what's left, you know, you know, you can use for, uh, you know, for nice things like a takeaway meal or a holiday. Okay, so you've got the government saying we need to stimulate the economy, but we're not going to close the tax loopholes. We're not going to get rid of corporate welfare. We're not going to get rid of negative gearing. We're not going to, you know, uh, get rid of the six to eight, ten billion dollars every year that goes in uh, franking credits. We're going to keep all that. 
We're going to keep all the nice things. We're going to keep all the the, the, the tax-friendly initiatives which we have to help investors, right? But we need to stimulate the economy. Now, these people will not give workers a wage cut, and we've ensured that. We've guaranteed that in a number of ways. One, we've criminalised unions out of existence. And listening to Mr Morrison doing his little speech to the business uh, sector in uh, Perth a week ago, he's crapping on about the fact that we need to curb union power. There is no union power. Unions have been legislated out of existence. If you're a member of the CFMEU, you can be jailed for not answering questions. I could be a drug lord. I could import a billion dollars of cocaine on some yacht and I've got the right, the freedom to remain silent during an interview. But if you're a union member, if you're a member of the CFMMEU and you refuse, you refuse to open your mouth about a union meeting you've been at, you can be jailed. And there will be unionists who will be jailed in the next six months because there are cases going through the courts currently as I speak. And the legislation is there, as Julie Bishop said, if Parliament's not willing to regulate the security agencies, we are in for a lot of trouble as a community. So you've got unions being legislated out of... Then you've got cheap labour that's come in under the auspices of the so-called 457 visa, you know, and there's a whole type, whole range of visas which ensure that, especially at the lower end of the market, there is a bountiful supply of non-unionised cheap labour which is used to keep wages down. So if you've got unions who can't bargain, because it's illegal to bargain outside a so-called enterprise bargaining period, and it's illegal to strike in this country, although we beat our breasts about you know what's happening in China and Iran, we never look at what's happening in this country. So there is no push for a wage rise. Then you change legislation in such a way, and again... And again, I congratulate the Australian people for electing the Morrison government because we saw hospitality workers and restaurant workers losing a significant proportion of their overtime payments. And this week, we'll see in the Fair Work Commission, we most likely will see hairdressers, hugely paid people, aren't they? 90% female workforce you know, uh, have their penalty rates decreased on Sundays and public holidays significantly, lose up to $100 a week. So we've got all these things. We've got a Fair Work Commission, which is not about fair work, which is about removing workers' rights. We have a crippled, comatosed, tied-down Gulliver union movement. Remember Gulliver? Gulliver's Travels and Lilliput? Well, we've got this Gulliver who's tied down with all these little pieces of legislation who has forgotten its power if it confronts the government of the day. But we'll we'll eventually be pushed into a corner where we'll need to confront the government of the day. So we've got no push for wage rises because the government, successive governments, has successfully neutralised the union movement. They have successfully changed the culture wherever Australian thinks they're a small investor. They have create, successfully created an investment class of about 8% of Australians of the disposable income to use this country's taxation-friendly laws to enrich themselves at the, at the behest of the community. So we've got 
the government, faced with this dilemma of decreased consumption and decreasing profitability and possibly a recession, says, aha, we will give people tax cuts. Right? What's a tax cut? A tax cut is basically saying is the government reducing the revenue it raises from the people it governs. So if you've got a government which says we need to maintain a balanced budget, and that's a fancy word for saying how much you spend needs to be almost the same as how much you earn, who's going to fail? Who's going to pay the price? It's not going to be the corporate sector. They've just won the election. They're Cooper Hoop. They're so happy, all those pensioners, all those pensioners out there, all those old people, people like me, you know, voted for the Liberal National Party. They can do what they like, they think. So who's going to suffer? Well, even I, a simple person like me, knows who's going to suffer, and I've seen it already. First of all, it'll be people who receive the new start allowance, the new, the new criminals in our society, people who can't get work, ostracised, marginalised, criminalised, forced to go through unnecessary crap to receive $250 a week, almost a million, and it'll increase as the economy splutters to a halt. Because you know what people are going to do with their tax cuts? They're not going to go out there and buy shit. They've got enough shit in their homes. They're going to pay their mortgage down. They're going to pay the electricity bills. They're going to pay their rents. That's what they're going to do. So who's going to suffer? People in disability support pensions. We've already seen their ranks cold and the inability of most people with significant disability to get a disability support pension in 2019. We will see people on old age pensions shunted aside. Those people who supported the Morrison government somehow thinking that it's going to provide a bit of a security for them in the long run, shunted aside in favour of the corporate sector, in favour of the business sector, in in favour of their well-off friends. I won't use the word mate. I'm not going to tarnish the word mate by using that to describe them. And the list goes on and on. So new start allowance, disability support pension, single parents' benefits. We've already seen all the horrible, contentious rules that have been brought in. The basic card for every Australian, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in remote communities, and it goes on and on and on and on. But there's a point, and that's why we're here. There is a point when people say enough is enough. When people see through the garbage, irrespective of the 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year and 366-day-a-year propaganda, propaganda which masquerades as informed commentary in the corporate-owned media and the government guild at ABC in this country, irrespective of that propaganda, there will be a price to pay and it won't take, it won't be long before people begin to understand there are no future for them and more importantly no future for their children and their children because what we've seen during the globalisation corporatisation privatisation 
deregulation revolution is the dismantling of the social elevator. The dismantling of the social elevator was created after the Second World War, which allowed children to blossom and develop themselves because of talent, not because of where they were, what, what side of the sheets they were born on or where they were born and what side of the railway tracks they lived on. But today it's a different story. It's a different story. You look at the education sector, the billions of dollars pumped into the private education sector. Billions of dollars, the private education sector, expanding while we have the ridiculous situation where in Australia the first place in the world was Victoria which introduced legislation for three compulsory secular education where we have religious instructions in state schools, which is financed by the, you know, the, the federal government. We have the privatisation of more and more aspects of public education, where we have the starvation of funds to the public education sector, to the degree where parents are paying dollars $2,000, $2,500, $3,000, $3,000 a year to send one child to a public primary school, especially in New South Wales and Victoria. Extraordinary situation we find ourselves in because we have allowed that to occur. Extraordinary. Really extraordinary when you think about it. I didn't think that when I first started on this journey in 1968, when I was 17, 16, 17, I didn't think that 51 years later I'd be talking about this. I didn't think that I'd be talking about the reforms which have been taken away, that have been removed. I didn't think about the cultural shift, and I should have. Because 1968 was a pivotal year. And as I said before, revolution is about dismantling power and changing culture. And what we had in Australia in the late 60s and early 70s was a cultural revolution. A cultural revolution which we are still experiencing today. A cultural revolution which is based on the concept of inclusiveness and equality. But there was never, never any movement to dismantle power. Those who exercise power continue to exercise that power. And what we've seen is the concentration of power over the last 40 to 50 years in fewer and fewer hands as a direct consequence of a cultural shift in this country where everybody thinks they're a small business person and they're more worried about their superannuation than anything else on the planet. So what we saw at the last state election was to be expected. What we saw at the last state election was the Australian people continuing to support deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, somehow thinking if they begged and beseeched for forgiveness that somehow a few crumbs would be brushed off the corporate table into their hands by a federal parliament which is dominated by people 
reflect the interests of the investment class and the, and the people who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. So, what's your plans? Well, it's simple. Now, I'm involved in a public housing struggle in Victoria and I'm sure other people in Australia are also involved in a public housing struggle because because of the privatisation revolution, we've seen the privatisation of public housing. Now, I'm going to go through this slowly because we are involved here in Victoria in a four-year campaign to rehabilitate the concept of public housing. Public housing owned by the state, managed by the state, not owned by private corporations or private charities. That's what public housing should be. Today, less than 3% of people in Victoria live in public housing. I'm not sure of the figures in the other, other parts of Australia, but I'm sure it's a diminishing figure, especially on the eastern seaboard, especially in New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania. So what, why is the public housing struggle so important? I'll tell you why. It's very simple. Everything is simple. Nothing is complex. We're told everything is complex. Nothing is complex. Everything. Life is about electrons and protons and cells and microorganisms. It is simple. It is not complex. It's simple building blocks which create life. And it's the same with political organisation, social organisation, cultural organisation. There are fundamental building blocks. A fundamental building block in any society is the ability to access shelter. Because that access to shelter gives you security. That security allows you to bring up your children in the same geographical region and they can make friends, become members of associations, go to the same school and develop themselves to their fullest potential. And the whole concept of public housing is that you get a roof over your head which is owned by the state for 25% of your income. Not for, for market rents, 25% of your income, Okay. So why do you need a strong public housing sector? Because today, in 2021, the major issue faced by almost every Australian, every citizen, every resident, every asylum seeker, every refugee is accommodation costs. Accommodation costs. Accommodation costs take up to 40% average between 35 and 40% of a person's income. And if the accommodation sector is dominated by the private sector, there is no competition as far as rents and prices are concerned. No competition, none whatsoever. And what that means is that irrespective of tax cuts, irrespective of the rise, which won't occur in Social Security benefits, irrespective of rising wages, 40% of every dollar is wasted. Wasted. 40% of every dollar is wasted on accommodation costs. If you had a strong public housing sector, 15 20% lived in public housing, You'd have real competition in the marketplace. Rents would decrease at the lower end of the marketplace. Prices would drop as investors would flee because rents have decreased from the housing sector. You'd have increased security in the community and, believe it or not, 
you would have that increased income necessary to keep a capitalist economy chugging along so businesses and corporations can continue to make profits. Because billions of dollars, not hundreds of billions, millions, billions of dollars would be released into the community as disposable income, giving people the ability to live fulfilling lives. So this public housing struggle is a continuing struggle. And I encourage you to go to our Facebook pages, Public Housing, Everybody's Business, or Defend and Extend Public Housing, or go to our Facebook, or go to our webpage, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, or YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, and the list goes on and on. This is an ongoing struggle which is fundamental to change the nature of society. It is not a revolutionary struggle. It is not about changing cultural dismantling power. It's a struggle about reform. It's a struggle about ensuring that everybody has the potential to develop themselves to their fullest potential. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across the Community Radio Network. This program has been produced from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. My name is Joseph Toscana. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. You can join public interest before corporate interest. Go to the website, pibci, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Download an application form. That's pibci, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Yes, I do answer letters occasionally. Well, every week I answer them. Write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville, 3052. Go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. You can send me emails at anarchistage at yahoo.com you can write to post office box 20 parkville 3052 and most importantly of all take out that little acorn of hope that you have in your pocket hope the love child of desire and expectation the desire for change and the expectation that change will occur and i can assure you and i never give guarantees not only will your personal life be improved, but you will be, become part of a social movement which will forever change this country. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week. Listening to The Anarchist World this week via the Community Radio Network. This program has been produced from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. Listen to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station courtesy of the community radio network next week where once again we'll be trying to untangle the web we're tied up in because if we don't untangle the web and see the sunlight nothing will ever change thank you once again for listening to the anarchist world this week on your local community radio station courtesy of the community radio Network. Listen next week. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. 
wash my hands. Oh, Lord, yeah. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.